Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast brought to you by MyBookie, where you can right now, through the month of September, Create a brand new account at mybookie.ag. Simply use the promo code UGA. And get this, guys. They're going to double your first deposit. No, that's not a trick. Whatever you deposit, they are going to double it. So go ahead. Take advantage of this opportunity while you can. you got about a week and a half left to get this in. So make sure you do that here before the month of September expires. So bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. But as you guys know, I am your host, Tyler. And while this third episode of a game week is normally reserved for our traditional game preview episodes, I know, guys. Like, look, I know you. I know the vast majority of you do not want to listen to me go through an hour-long deep dive into the Kent State Golden Flashes. I understand that. Trust me, I do. So, As a show of the people, with you guys always at the forefront of our minds when planning out our content, just like I did leading into the Samford game a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to call an audible this week and replace the traditional game preview episode with a more in-depth, I guess one final in-depth look into Georgia's dominant 48-7 victory over South Carolina last week. So that'll be like the part of it. And then the other part is version 2.0 of my SEC power rankings, the first edition of which I revealed what following week one. And we have a little bit more information to operate off off now. We've got more games that we've seen, more evidence. So we're going to go back and revisit those power rankings and bring you version 2.0. But while we're going to do all of that stuff, I also don't want to completely neglect the game against Kent State. Yeah, we know the Golden Flashes are going to be physically overmatched. That's not even a question. But unlike Samford, Kent State actually does have some players and some schematic things that they do that we do have to account for in this game. Samford, we could have literally not practiced all week, rolled out of bed and still beat that team and probably shut them out. I mean, that's honestly what we could have done because they were just so physically overmatched. And trust me, yes, Kent State is still very physically overmatched, but they're a much more respectable opponent an FCS team like Samford. So I do want to give you at least a brief preview of what to expect Saturday against Kent State. 
So to start things off here, yeah, this is a MAC team. In case you don't know that, Kent State does play in the Mid American Conference up there uh, in the Midwest. But this is a program that's not just like you know the bottom tier MAC type team. That's not what they are. They played in the MAC title game last year. So this is a good quality MAC team. Still a MAC team, true, but it's a good MAC team. Now they did lose actually quite a bit off the team from last year. They lost their quarterback, Denny Crum, a lot of other production. In fact, they were only 117th nationally in Bill Connolly's returning production numbers coming into the season. So that was a really good Kent State team last year that made it all the way to Detroit for the MAC title game. They did not end up winning that game, but they made it there. So good year for them, but they lost a lot. So it's not the same team. I don't want to try to make it out to be exactly what they were last year, but still, this is a respectable group of five team and program. This is not Akron, for instance, who is just God freaking terrible, awful. That is just one horrific football team. That is not what Kent State is. But while they they do not return a ton of production overall, if you look at the entire roster, I do for a second here want to focus on what they do return. There's a couple big time players, especially offensively, that are coming back for them. They return their top rusher and their top receiver from last year. Marquez Cooper is that running back. He was a 1,200 yard guy last year, and he's a good back. Guys, I watched that Mac title game. In fact, I watched that sitting in a bar in Atlanta prior to the SEC Championship game last year, last December, and I watched them play that football game, and they, they can run the football, guys. Their scheme is fantastic run the ball, and Cooper is a really, really good quality running back. In fact, I was kind of surprised he didn't transfer out and try to go to a Power 5 school, but he's back, and he's a really good football player. And their top receiver, Dante Cephas, was also a 1,200-yard guy, but just through the air last year. He's back as well. He's a, a lanky guy. He's about 6'1", 6'2", but only weighs about 180-ish pounds. Really lanky guy, but he's got some twitch to him. He's tough in the open field, good route runner, strong hands, and go up and win at the top of the route, all those things. He's a really good group of five receiver. Again, another guy that I thought might dabble with a transfer portal and see if he can maybe catch on with a, with a power five team somewhere, but he didn't. He came back along with Cooper, so that's a really, really nice one-two punch for them coming back at the skill positions at running back and wide receiver. Offensively, Kent State is still really good. We're going to get to that in a second here. The problem for Kent State last year and this year as well is that they just cannot play defense. In fact, this number is startling to me. Like It's crazy to think this is the case, but I mean, your splits offensively and defensively could not have been more drastically different than they were for Kent State last year. They were dead last in the MAC in total defense last year. They gave up 471 yards a game, guys. That's how bad they were. Now, this year, I guess... Technically, they're improved through three games, giving up only 420 yards a game. So still very, very bad, but not as bad. At least early results would would indicate that. But that should tell you just how dynamic they were offensively. This is a team that was dead last in the entire MAC last year in total defense, but still some way, somehow found a way to win their division and end up in the MAC title game. That's how good they are on offense. That's how dynamic they were last year. Sure, they gave up 471 yards a game last year, but they averaged nearly 500 on offense, 493 yards a game. Now, this year, through three games, those numbers are not even close. They're only averaging 397 yards a game right now. So, in the service, you would look at that and say, well, Tyler, they're just not as good. Like, we're just going to roll over them. I don't care what they did last year. And yeah, I get that. It's, it's a different team. They lost a lot of production off last year's team. I, I completely understand that. But you also have to look at the context here. You have to factor in the schedule. Through three games, they have played two Power 5 teams and two actually 
pretty damn good Power 5 teams, at least based on the early results. They played Washington, who just beat the hell out of Michigan State last weekend, and Oklahoma, who just beat the hell out of Nebraska, which I guess everyone does that to Nebraska, so what's that mean? But these are two good, very good Power 5 teams, at least so far from what we've seen this year, and Kent State has already played both of them. So against those two teams, they're only averaging 317 yards a game and 11.5 points per game against those Power 5 programs. Now, they did put up 556 yards total offense and 63 points in a get-right game last week against Long Island. Now, that's Long Island. So you go from one in the spectrum playing Power 5 teams, two really good Power 5 teams, and then you go play Long Island. So what what is what is this team? Like probably somewhere in the middle. They're probably not a, a team that's going to put up 556 yards a game every game, but probably somewhere you know in the 450 to 475 range is probably where they're going to be when they get to the, into the max slate of their schedule. But I mean, the, honestly, it's not all what they're doing this year against Power Five teams is not altogether different what they, compared to what they did last year against Power Five teams. This is a program that does not shy away from playing these big P five teams. They played Iowa. Texas A&M and Maryland last year. And against those three teams, they averaged 353 yards per game and only 11 points per game. So that's not altogether different than what they were doing against Washington, Oklahoma. Yeah, a little bit more in terms of yards per game, but the scoring total is essentially exactly the same. But still, at the end of the year, they averaged 471 yards a game offensively. So they were just like completely dominating opposing defense once they got into into conference play. And I fully expect that to happen this year. Now, I, I, let's give you a little bit more context here. So yes, I mean, Oklahoma ended up beating them pretty handily. I think it was like 33-3, to three, something like that. I think it was the final score. But Oklahoma was only up 7-3 to three at the half in that game. And if you look at the Washington game in week one, I mean, yeah, Washington outgained them 525-340 to 340 in that game. So almost you know, 200 plus yards on, on them in their yardage margin. But Washington also outgained Michigan State last week, 503 to 365. So not quite as drastic of a split there when Washington played Michigan State, but not altogether different if you look at the total yardage margin when comparing how Washington beat Michigan State last week and how they beat Kent State in week one. So I, I think this Kent State team is a good, solid group of five team. They're not an elite group of five team, but they're they're a good, solid team that's that's going to probably make some noise in their side of the MAC again this year. Are they going to win that, that division and make it to the MAC title game again? I don't know if I'm ready to go there. They did lose a lot of production, but it's still a good quality group of five team. And one aspect of this team that has carried over from last season is their emphasis on using the quarterback in the run game. That was a big part of what they did last year. Denny Crum was a, a, a vet who was a bigger guy, not like the fastest guy, the most feet, fleet of foot guy, but they used him very effectively in the run game. In fact, Denny Crum ran for 703 yards last year. Their new quarterback, Colin Schley, already has 177 yards rushing in three games, averaging 7.4 yards per rush. I did I did not watch the entire Michigan State game. I, or I'm sorry, the entire Oklahoma game. I watched about a half of that game. I did watch the entire Washington game. And Colin Schley, I mean, I watched Denny Crum some last year. I watched him in the MAC title game. Uh, I think I caught one of the games in MAC last year. I forget who they were playing. Uh, maybe Buffalo, maybe, can't remember. Um, but... Colin Schley is a better athlete at quarterback than Denny Crum. Now, he's not as knowledgeable. He's not as experienced. He's not as good of a passer as Crum was. But in terms of athleticism at the quarterback position and like being a dual threat guy, I mean, Crum put up 700 yards rushing last year. Very, very effective rusher. Colin Schley is a better athlete and a better runner from the quarterback position for them. And if you look at like, okay, what do they like to do offensively? Are they, I mean, is it clear that they're a rushing team with how much they run the quarterback? Well, I mean, yeah, they run the ball a lot. They averaged 250 yards a game last year but they also averaged 244 yards passing. So in terms of production, it's about a 50-50 split between rush and pass. 
And right now, they're actually still leading the MAC. Even though they played Washington, even though they played Oklahoma, they are still leading the MAC right now and rushing it, averaging 221 yards a game. What has dropped off this season, as I mentioned a second ago, is the passing game. They're only averaging 175 yards a game without Denny Crum. That's kind of what I expected because Schley is a good runner, but he's just not the passer that Crum was. Not that Crum was an elite passer, but he was just more experienced and, and just an overall better passer than what we've seen from a young Colin Schley right now. So it's pretty clear this team wants to run the football offensively. Now defensively, like, they're just not good. Like we'll, we'll, we'll say that. They're just not good defensively. But if you break it down, okay, what do they struggle with more, the run or the pass? Well, statistically speaking, and if you watch them play, I mean, again, I watched about a game and a half of them so far this year, they they struggle much more against the pass. And maybe that's a function of who they play. You know, Kalen DeBoer at Washington now with Michael Penix, he's a guy that's known for putting the football in the air. He wants to throw to win. You've got Jeff Levy running that offense at Oklahoma now with Dylan Gabriel. Obviously, they want to throw the football as well. But they are only giving up 126 yards a game on the ground versus 266 passing. So this is a team that has struggled to cover anyone so far, especially those Power 5 teams they have played. And as you can imagine, with what we've been doing offensively, kind of how we've structured things, that's not exactly a great matchup for Kent State this weekend. But to wrap things up here, I know you don't want to hear too much more of this. In the final analysis, again, this is a group of five team that knows how to win. They have experienced some recent success, and they are absolutely no stranger to playing in big-time Power 5 environments. They do it each and every year, multiple times each and every year. This is not just one of those MAC teams that plays like one pay game like they play a couple every single year they've been there they've done that they're not going to be intimidated now their coach Sean Lewis I'm sure a lot of you guys saw this earlier in the week it was kind of funny what did he say about our team it was the greatest assemblage of talent in the history of college football something along those lines that's not word for word but that's the idea so um, he's certainly talking the game there and he is laying on really thick but this team is not going to be intimidated. Like They know that they're overmatched physically. I mean, there's no no questioning that, but they're going to come out firing. They're going to come out and give it their best shot because they've been there. They've done that. This is not a, a new thing for these guys. This is old hat for them. They do this each and every year. So there, there's that when you talk about Kent State. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say this and call me crazy if you want because I know it's a G5 team, but honestly, with what they've done offensively so far this year and going back to last year as well, the track record of this offense and this and this coaching staff and what they do schematically, this is probably going to be our biggest defensive test to this point. Now, I know that Oregon has more talent than them. I'm not questioning that. I know South Carolina has more overall talent than they do, but they do not execute to the degree that Kent State does with that offense. They really do not. I mean, in Oregon, the context there is, you know, it's first game, play caller, first time play caller, first time ever calling games, uh, calling plays, and a lot of new faces, Bo Nix there. And like, they just, that was not this same Oregon team that we're going to see, that we saw against BYU, for instance, last week, that we're going to see moving forward. That's not the same Oregon team. That was, you know, the first time out. And they're, I don't say they were a mess offensively, but they certainly were not executing at a high level. Kent State is going to execute at a high level. That's just what they do. They This is this is what this team is built on. They they put up points. This is a, a prolific G5 offense. And I think it's, it's fair to say, again, based off who we played so far, this will be the most prolific rushing attack that we have seen to this point. You've heard me question. Again, I, I'm not saying that we can't do it. I love our inside linebackers. They're like I am becoming bigger fans of those guys each and every week, each and every time I see them go out there. Like, I think that we have the dudes that can defend the run. I just think it's fair to ask the question, like, can we hold up against the run as effectively as we have in the past couple of years? 
And to this point, we haven't really been challenged by a team that can run the ball, you know, effectively and prolifically. Well, this team can. And I know it's a, a team that's obviously uh, got G5 talent going against our guys. I mean, we have one of the, if not the most talented teams in all of America. So, you know, there's a mismatch there. But in terms of like, which teams are most productive rushing the football that we've played so far this season, it's clearly going to be Kent State. So, I mean, that's an intriguing matchup there. But man, like, again, it is a tough matchup for their defense against our offense. I mean, just obviously talent-wise, but but they really are struggling to cover anybody. I mean, against Washington, they had receivers. Washington had receivers running wide open all day long. And if you look at what we've been doing so far this season with the assortment of weapons that we have offensively and as high of a degree as we are executing, at least in every game, but the Sanford game, how Stetson Bennett's playing right now, the guy that brought Bowers getting on back on track last week, you have to imagine that we're going to be able to do almost whatever we want offensively, If especially if we bring our A game. If we play like the way that we did and we execute the way that we did against South Carolina and don't execute like we did against Sanford, I don't think they're going to be able to stop us a single drive, to be quite honest with you. I mean, look, we, we know, like we know the talent gap is monumental in this game. Like, let's just call it what it is. That, that, that's the reality of the situation. So with that, and if we show up and play anywhere close to our standard, we're just too talented, we're too good, and we're going to put this team away. But, you know, again, like the Sanford game, you always worry at least to some degree about our team playing to that standard in games like this. But that's that's the whole point of the standard. It's not about your opponent. It's about you. You don't try to get up for the opponent and play really well against opponent A because they're a more high profile team. You try to play to the same standard, the same level every single week. And that is how you avoid letdown. So hopefully our, our team, I know we embrace that. Hopefully we come out and and execute the way that we know how to, the way that we did against Oregon, the way that we did against, against South Carolina and not Sanford. And uh, if we do that, and after what I saw last week, I, I believe that we will. And if we do, like we're going to win this game going away. It's a 40 plus point spread. And I do respect their offense. I really, really do. But if we come out and play our game, play to our standard, there's no way they should be able to hang with this football team. So there is your quick preview of the Kent State Golden Flashes. I've got a lot more to get to today, but before we move on, I do want to just quickly remind you guys one more time about our guys at my bookie. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. It has been through three weeks. It has been a fantastic start to the college ball season for me, not just for Georgia winning football games, which is my number one priority, but my account at my bookie is looking pretty solid right now too, because I have gotten off to the best three week start that I've ever gotten off to when it comes to betting on college football. I am 22 and 11 right now through the first three weeks. And at some point it's inevitable that you're going to cool off. But right now I am on a heater to start the season And I really want you guys to be able to take some of those picks and earn some money for yourself. And my bookie is the way to do it. That's how I make my sports betting money. And it's how you can too. It's very simple, guys. All you have to do is go to mybookie.ag, sign up for a new account today. And when you do so, use the promo code UGA and you will get a 100% deposit bonus on that first deposit. And Charlie and I, and Charlie, I mean, Charlie had a hell of a week last week. I think she was like eight and one overall. So I thought I had a good week. I went seven and three last week. She went eight and one. She made my scores look pathetic. So we're giving you winners, guys, and we want you to be able to put them to use. And you might not even need our help. You probably don't. You guys know college football. You have a ton of football knowledge. So put your knowledge to the test with my bookie. You can bet on lines. You can bet on props. You can bet on futures. Whatever it is that you want to bet on, my bookie has those options for you. So again, sign up today using promo code UGA at mybookie.ag. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, guys, I'm back. Let's keep this thing rolling and let's transition into the Upon Further Review segment, which is where I'm just going to take one more final in-depth look back at the win over South Carolina. Now that I've had a couple of times to go back and rewatch the game with a fine-tooth comb, I've been able to go back and go through three rewatches at this point. And the first thing I want to start with here, my first note, is this. Please, guys, just humor me here. Give me a few minutes to wax poetic about our offensive coordinator, Todd Munkin. I've been talking about this guy for a year and a half now, at least, about how much I love him. I know people on the national stage didn't really give him the love that he deserved last year because they just had this perception of our offense as antiquated and behind the times, and like we just didn't run a modern offense. It was the defense that was leading everything, and we were winning in spite of our offense, and Kirby's holding the offense back, all that stuff. You've, you've heard it all before, right? Well, it's, it could not have been further from the truth. They just didn't want to actually open their eyes and watch, or option B is they just don't really understand football, which I think for a lot of people is probably the case, people who were saying those things. But Todd Munkin was getting the job. In fact, Todd Munkin was getting the job done in 2020. The guys were running open all over the field in 2020. We just didn't have the quarterback to get it to get it to those guys consistently. Stetson was still young. He wasn't the same Stetson Ben he is right now. Obviously, with the Dewan Mathis experiment was um, was what it was, um, and we had some injuries in, in 2020 all over the field. It wasn't just a quarterback. So that that season was what it was. But Todd Munkin did his job that season last year. I, I've said it before. I'll say it again for you guys. We were elite offensively. Now, were we uh, a top five offense last year? I don't. I don't know if we were top five, but we were. I think we were a top ten caliber offense last year. This year, we're a top three caliber, if not the number one offense in the country. Honestly, I mean, maybe you can say Ohio State, but the way we are operating right now, we are as good as anyone in college football, and that is a beautiful thing to be able to say. And we have fantastic players. There's no doubt. No doubt about that. I mean, any offense coordinator is got who's going to put numbers like Todd Munkin is putting up has to have really good players. But those players. You know, there's a lot of teams that have really good players, like Texas A&M. They've got great players, right? Tons of great players. But what are they doing offensively? They don't have Todd Munkin. We have the total package. We have the players, and we got the coordinator. And I just, I just love, guys. I love. I am in love with what we are doing schematically, and that is Todd Munkin at work. And you can clearly tell, you know, Year one, I thought Munkin did a fantastic job. No one really paid attention to the national scene because we weren't great in, in 2020. 
Last year, I thought he did a really good job, especially considering that we had to kind of alter our offense to a degree when Stetson came in. And uh, we, we just dealt with injuries, a receiver all over the place. I mean, it wasn't just the fact that Stetson was coming in, but we were just a mash unit receiver for, for most of the year. I mean, our, our two most consistent players last year offensively, at least in terms of the pass game, were a true freshman tight end and a redshirt freshman wide receiver in Lad McConkie, who was a former three-star guy. And both those guys are obviously amazing and fantastic, but that's who we were, we were working with last year almost exclusively for a little while. A.D. Mitchell started to come on a little bit, but you know, Pickens was out all year. Jermaine Burton was in and out. I mean, Arian Smith, I mean, just God, poor Arian Smith just can't stay healthy. So, you know, we weren't, I think if we were fully healthy last year, we might have been doing some of these things that we're doing this year, maybe not to this degree, but we weren't healthy. But now you can tell that we are in year three of this system and we finally have the quarterback position where he wants it to be. A veteran quarterback who is operating at an extraordinarily high level. And Todd Munkin has turned this into a truly modern offense. And like, what does that even mean? Like, and there are different ways you can run modern offenses. To, you know, there are, Not every offense is the exact same, but when you think about some of the better modern offense, especially like when you look at the NFL, because that's, you know, Todd Munkin came from the NFL, right? He was in college for a while, went to the NFL, coordinated the Bucks, and comes back to the college game, right? So he's been in both, in, in, at both levels. And so he's taken some elements from the college game, some elements from the NFL game, but we're running a lot of like West Coast stuff and, and a lot more of the, the maybe like modern variations of it that you see from guys like Sean McVay with the Rams, Kyle Shanahan from the 49ers, formerly from the Falcons. We're using a ton of motion. We're using formations and it's not just like for the hell of the guys. Like every time we put somebody in motion, it is deliberate. We have a purpose behind it. It's not just to like say, oh, like we just want to put this guy in motion and just like try to confuse them. Sometimes it's about confusion, but also there we're trying to move guys. We're trying to create matchups. We're trying to force them into looks that are favorable to us. They are all deliberate. There's something we are trying to do. So we're using motion. We're using formation to create those favorable matchups. We're attacking the perimeter like crazy. And I love how we're attacking the perimeter. We're not doing this every time, but we use a lot of tight formations. You've seen us do that, right? A bunch sets and just tight sets in general, especially with our tight ends. And we're going to operate. We're going to open up in those tight formations and we attack the perimeter out of those tight formations. And the reason that's so effective is because when the offense gets in a tight formation like we do so so often, it forces the defense to get in tight sets. I mean, go back and look at the Oregon game. Look at the South Carolina game. There are sets where we're there, where we're in tight, and they have they have like ten or eleven defenders within like the tackle box essentially, and then at the snap we start to attack the perimeter. Like we send those we send those skill players, whether it's tight ends, whether it's wide receivers who are in tight, we we send them horizontally at the snap and we are able to gain leverage and attack the perimeter and the defenses just don't have answers for that right now because if they don't get in tight when we align tight with formationally then we will run the football right at them and they will be out leveraged in the ground game so it truly is a situation where he has created what we call classic conflict for the defense damned if you do damned if you don't if you want to put it in a different way and the more I watch it I love what he's trying to do and again it's not every snap but more often than not he's almost trying to cut the field in half offensively. And what I mean by that is he is trying to get like our two best wide receivers on one side. I know if AD was healthy, be AD and Lad McConkie. Get them matched up on one side of the field. And then you have our tight ends, Brock and Darnell, on the other side of the field. And that's forcing defenses to make a choice. Again, damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's classic conflict. The defense has to make a choice. And whatever choice they make, we're going to run the counter off of that because they cannot cover everything. That's that's the that's one true reality of defensive football is you can't stop 
everything. You have to make choices and prioritize what you're going to try to stop. And you just have to try to force the offense to play left-handed when you make those choices. The problem is, what is left-handed for Georgia? Okay, so you think we want to get Brock Bowers involved primarily. He's our number one option. Okay, well, if you force us to play left-handed, does that mean that we're getting the ball to Darnell Washington? Okay, I can play that left-handed. Does that mean you're trying to get the ball to Ladd McConkey? I'll play left-handed that way all day long. To A.D. Mitchell when he's healthy, to Kenny McIntosh out of the backfield, I will play left-handed all day long with all of those guys. I don't know if there's a defense out there that can truly force us to play left-handed. I don't know if we have a left hand. I think all of our hands are right hands. Maybe, I guess maybe if we were, like, think somebody completely shut down the run game and it's a way to play action, we were forced to, like, drop back pass, which we haven't seen us do consistently yet this season. Maybe that's left-handed, but even that, I don't know. Stetson is playing at such a high level right now. He's just a different guy. He's the best version of himself. So what I'm getting at here again is that Todd Munkin has done a fantastic job of creating ways to put the defense in classic conflict to where they cannot be right. They simply cannot be right. And it certainly helps to have the talent that we have, but you've got to be able to scheme it up as well. They go hand in hand. Talent's the most important aspect of this, but you have a lot of talent, again, like Texas A&M and not be good offensively because you have no idea what you're trying to do on offense. That's not the case for us. We have the talent and we have one hell of of an offensive coordinator. And, you know, we've also been running a lot of RPOs. We've gone heavy on RPOs. A lot of those perimeter pass plays that you see, guys, those are RPOs. And the quickest way to tell if you're curious on what it actually is an RPO, because we do a lot of play fake. Not every play fake we do is an RPO. Some of them are designed play actions. But look at the offensive line. If the offensive line fires off like it is run, and they are a yard or two down the field blocking run, and we pull the ball and throw it. Even if we don't pull it, sometimes it's a pre-snap read, but look at the offensive line. If the offensive line is blocking run, it is a called run play with an RPO attached to it. And Stetson is swinging the ball out to the perimeter based off of reads. Some of them are pre-snap reads based off the leverage of the defense. Some of them are post-snap reads. He's reading a specific player, whether it's a linebacker, whether it's a safety, whether it's a star defender. He's reading certain guys and he's and he's making decisions based off that. But we are running a ton of RPOs. And I've called for this for a while. Um, one of the reasons I think the past couple of years that we have not been as explosive in the run game uh, is very simply that we're facing a multitude of stack boxes. I mean, that's just what we face as a rule defensively, even so far this year. We're, I think we're going to start to pull teams out of that, but one way to counteract that, I've always felt, and to create some more opportunities for the run game, especially if you lack a truly dual-threat quarterback, is to run RPOs. Because you're if teams want to stack the box, that's fine. You will absolutely cut their throat in the pass game with RPOs, and you'll force them to slow down that that trigger into the into the box against the run and that would open up more room for the run game and I've wanted us to do that more and more and more and this year we are seeing heavy heavy use of RPOs which is beautiful it's a beautiful sight for me and I, and I mentioned this before we're also doing more design QB run stuff which is another way to open up more room for the running backs in the, the traditional run game but the bottom line is that Todd Munkin is a master at his craft who finally has all the tools to pull off his magnum opus, which is exactly what I think we are in the midst of experiencing right now in this 2022 college football season. And what the heck, while we're still on the topic of Todd Munkin, let's just keep going. One more thing here, one more thing I want to point out, and this is this is very much a Todd Munkin thing. He has been a master at using constraint plays this year. And when I when I say constraint play, I've talked about this before when we've done our, our uh, scheme theme episodes, but for those of you who might not have heard those, might have missed this, a constraint play, like most people call them counter plays, but technically they're called constraint plays. And really what you're trying to do with constraint plays is you are running different actions 
off of your base plays, okay? So you have your base plays, whether it's counter, whether it's uh, some sort of boot action, whether it's a screen pass, like whatever it might be, whatever your base plays are going to be, what you're trying to do is force defenses to overplay those base plays and then work something else off of it, right? So a constraint play or a, a counter is what a lot, a lot of people would call this, but I, I don't like using that word because I hear counter, I think like the actual run play, like you're running counter power. So I, I like to say constraint plays, but a constraint play is designed to create, they are, they're designed to create, number one, big play opportunities because defenses overplay those base plays because they see them on tape over and over and over again. And then the second thing that they also do, and this is probably what's most important about them, is that these constraint plays make your base plays more effective because when you run these constraint plays, what it's going to do, like if a defense has seen you run this base play over and over again on tape, and then you, and in the game, you run a constraint off of that, well, next time they see that same action, they're going to be hesitant because in the back of their mind, they're like, wait a minute, like I know I saw this on tape, but I also early in the game saw them show me the same action and run this playoff of it, and they gash us for a big play. So it slows down their thinking, and it forces them to actually think more. And you don't want to think more on defense. You want to react. It slows down those reactions, and that just simply makes your base plays more effective. And Todd Munkin has become a master of everything, and master of his crap, a master of using constraint plays right now. And uh, I'm going to give you a case in point here. So the TD, that was, well, it was almost a touchdown on the quarterback draw in the first quarter. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Against South Carolina. And I'm going to go back three plays earlier in that drive before we called the quarterback draw. Three plays earlier in that same drive, we ran a screen to Kenny McIntosh from a very similar formation. It's not an exact carbon copy of the formation that we were in when we called that quarterback draw that Stetson almost took in for a touchdown, but it was very, very similar in the presentation. On both plays, what we had was Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington flexed out with Washington on the inside on both plays with both presentations. On the first play, we were in a two-by-two look with just Bowers and Washington on one side and Ladd, and was it maybe Dylan Bell on the other side? Maybe it was Kiers, another receiver on the other side. On the second play, the actual quarterback draw that almost scored a touchdown, we were in three-by-one with Ladd as an outside receiver to the field, um, which was the same side as Bowers and Washington. But again, Bowers and Washington were flexed out with Washington to the inside of Brock Bowers. And we ran the same action. We had Kenny Flair behind the receivers, behind Brock, behind Darnell, same action. And the defense is looking at that play. They see the formation. It's not an exact carbon copy formation of what they saw three plays ago, but it's very, very similar. And we're running the same action off of it with the running back flaring out behind the line of scrimmage to our strongest blockers, Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington. They've seen this on tape. So they're thinking, all right, screen, 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 screen. So we get them flowing hard in that direction to the field. And we have a single wide receiver to the boundary who runs a go route that and what that does, it clears the middle because people, all the defenders are flowing to the field to, to defend the the, uh, the screen, the, what they think is a screen to Kenny McIntosh. And now it also clears the right side of the field with the wide receiver, the single wide receiver to the boundary is running a go route. So Stetson has just open field in front of him to run the quarterback draw. So yes, it was a great play by Stetson to almost get that ball in the end zone. But that play was made based off formation by Todd Munkin. Formation and constraint plays, guys. It's a combination there. If we had just lined up in a totally different formation and not run that same action that we did three plays ago and had Stetson just run a quarterback draw, like sure, we might have gained like three or four yards, but we would not have bitten off the chunk of yards and almost had a touchdown that play the way that we did if it was not for the formational advantage and the constraint play that Todd Munkin was able to dial up. It is just beautiful 
offensive football, guys. I mean, it really is. That is what it's all about. And the result on that specific play was fantastic. It was almost a score. It set up a score on the next play. But not only that, like I said earlier, it's also going to pay dividends down the road because now teams have to hesitate we are, when we are running our base stuff out of those kind of formations and think, huh, wait, what What if we say quarterback draw? Because we're going to run that same action again, guys. We're going to run that over and over and over again. And now we've put on tape that we can also run a quarterback draw off of that action. It slows down their reactions because the defenders now have to think about that, and that makes us even more dangerous. And like in all the reverses that we saw Saturday, those were also plays that came off of our base action. Those were also constraint plays. Yes, again, designed to create big play opportunities in and of themselves, but they will also set up plays in the future and help make our base plays more effective. So Todd Munkin, again, just a genius and a master at work. All right, and for my next note, let's let's stick with the offense for one more note here. I just I've said this before. I want to say it once again. I just want to dispel the notion that Stetson Bennett has some sort of noodle arm. I've just I've never understood this, but some of the Stetson haters out there, like they're just convinced this guy has just an absolute pathetic arm. And that just could not be further from the truth. I mean, the flea flicker to Lad McConkey, he threw that ball 60 yards on the money. And it, like, I was at the game. So those of you at the game, you know what I'm talking about. That ball felt like it was almost shot straight up, right? It was like a moonshot. And it just came down perfectly, 60 yards in the air. So does he have Matthew Stafford's arm? No, that's not what anyone is saying. But this idea that Stetson doesn't have a good enough arm to throw the deep ball or fit the ball in a tight window is like, get out of here with that. Another play that would dispel that, uh, it was I think it was in the second quarter where we ran a naked boot. Darnell, op- Darnell Washington is the first option. He's in the flat there. Stetson didn't like what he saw there. Comes off of it real quick, whips his eyes around. He sees Marcus Rosemey, Jack St. Dragging at about 12-ish yards. And he fits a rocket right in between two defenders. Rosemey takes a hit. He holds on the ball. Kudos to him on that. But if Stetson did not have a good arm, guys, that ball is picked off. There's no way he fits that ball in between those two defenders the way he does in that tight space without having a very, very good arm. So as far as I'm concerned, this idea that Stetson just has a noodle arm, like that's nothing more than a talking point of Stetson haters. Like, I don't want to spend more, any more time on that, but I just had to throw that out there. Like I see him make these throws game after game, and I just... I, I'm just still just I marvel that there are people who want to get on social media and I know like that's the fringe element I understand that but it just the idea that those people exist like I just I don't understand man I don't understand how you can watch football and actually think that it's just it it baffles me but a couple more quick notes here uh, let's go to the defensive side of the ball here Michael Williams you guys know this is the guy that I pinpointed as the dude that I felt was going to have the biggest impact among all the freshmen in this year's class. Uh, obviously, Malachi Starks is giving him a run for his money, but I am still sticking on Michael Williams. I love this guy. He is going to be a monster pass rusher. He's not quite there yet, but dude, he's not that far off. I know, I know. I know how many questions we get, guys. Trust me. I see our our DMs. I see our inboxes. I understand how many questions we have about the lack of the pass rush. Only one sack through three games, which I've told you over and over again. Like I am not concerned about it because what we're doing is we're affecting the quarterback, and that's really what matters. Sacks are a means to an end. But if we're still able to be as dominant as we are, as productive as we are, just affecting the quarterback and maybe not getting him on the ground. I'm okay with that. Obviously, sacks are great. You want negative yards plays, but if we can affect the quarterback the way that we did Spencer Rattler on Saturday, I'm okay with that. But Michael Williams, man, good God. When you really dig in and just watch this guy play, the polish that he brings to the table at this stage in his career is staggering. It really is. Like his ability, and this is something I've been looking for for years from our guys, his ability to convert from rush defense to pass rush 
is advanced far beyond his years. I mean, guys, I've been telling you, a consistent complaint of mine over the years has been our inability to convert from rush defense to pass rush. Because we have, for a long time, Kirby, you know, he was, I don't know if I'm going to say he was slow to adjust to this, but yeah, he kind of was, I guess. But obviously, we put an emphasis on stopping the run. Kirby has adjusted that now. He's put more of an emphasis on, on stopping the pass. He knows how offensive football has adjusted over the years. But for a long time, like, our defensive line was told, hey, play, run first. Our front seven, like run responsibility is what you've got first. And so we were slow to convert from rush defense to to pass rush within a given play. Well, Michael Williams does that better than I think anyone on the team. Like Maybe Jalen Card, but Michael at such a young age is, I don't want to use the E word. I don't know if he's elite at it yet, but far advanced, far more advanced than you would think a guy would be for his age. I mean, compared to everyone else relative to all other true freshmen playing that position, he's about as good as it gets. So this guy is going to be a monster pass rusher for us. I think he's going to be a better pass rusher in college than Trayvon Walker is. I don't know if he's quite the overall athlete that Trayvon was, but in terms of his ability to rush the passer, he's just showing more pass rush skills at a young age than Trayvon did. It took a little while for him. And I think we could have used Walker in more, more in that role, Last year, but we had some of the other guys, especially the inside linebacker, that were that were just rushing the passer expertly. That you know we didn't have to. We use him a little bit differently. But Michael, without some of those guys inside linebacker rushing the passer the way they did last year, he's gonna have to pick up some of that slack. And I think he's got all the makings of being able to do that. And then my last note here for this segment before we move on to our SEC power rankings is uh, it's actually not Georgia specific at all. I, I want to talk about South Carolina for a second. This team, man. They just are not very good at all. I had them going six and six in the preseason. I might need to adjust that, have them going five and seven. The one game that I gave them, it was kind of a little upset pick in the preseason, was winning at Kentucky. And I do not think that I see that happening right now. I don't th- I still don't think Kentucky's great, but they are better than South Carolina. And after what I saw Saturday and go back and rewatching a couple of times, I'll give Kentucky this. They are just far better coached than South Carolina. It's not even close. I know that Carolina was dealing with some injuries last week, and and that's tough. I understand that. And obviously, there was a significant talent gap in that game. We all saw that. We know that. We knew that going in. That was clear. But what was hilarious to me, and yes, I found it hilarious, was how poorly coached they were, man. And and I find that funny because there's all, you guys heard it, all this love, all this hype for Shane Beamer, all the videos this guy makes, puts on social media. Oh, he's young. He gets it, man. Like, like he's going to turn this program around. Like, he's getting these guys. He's he's improving their recruiting. He's getting five-star guys out of the transfer portal. Like, he's the next hot name. And it's like, what is he? Like, is he really? Like, what exactly is that based on? And then you watch them play, and you're like, dear God, like, do they even coach this team? I mean, you have a quarterback, and this is not all on them. This is not new for Spencer Rattler, and this is why he lost a job. One of the big reasons he lost the job to Caleb Williams at Oklahoma. I mean, this guy can't identify obvious blitz pressure. Like, he just can't. I mean, all over the field. It doesn't matter. He just cannot identify where blitzes are coming from. There was one play in the first quarter, which I found interesting. I was sitting there in the stands. You know, I was up high, but I, I saw a pop. And this was early. This is like one of the earliest, maybe the first drive, one of the first drives. And we had Pop outside the box in the first quarter. Basically, he was. it seemed like he was inverted with Javon Bullard. And like we had Javon, the star, in playing inside linebacker in between the tackles. And when you see that, as a quarterback, you got to say, huh, wow, that's, uh, that's interesting. That's something new. Georgia, I haven't seen Georgia do that on tape. And um, so that's got to be like, they're up to something. Something's weird here. And that should be like alarm bells going off in your head. But no, 
No, not for Spencer Rattler. Just can't identify that kind of thing, which is about as obvious as you can possibly get when we line up guys in positions that we've never lined them up before in. Like, in ever. I don't think I've ever seen us do that with Kirby Smart. Like, I'm, I, I've watched every game, and I watch, go back and watch all these multiple times, and I could have missed something, sure, obviously, but I just can't remember us doing something like that. And, and I could see that from way up in the 500 level, and Spencer Rattler couldn't see from field level. And um, yeah, that's who they've got at quarterback. And sure, a lot of that is on Rattler, but you got to coach the guy up too. Like you've got you've got to be able to teach him to to see those things. But it was so much more than just that. I mean, there was a third and six again on that first drive. This was a. I mean, a lot of you guys are probably like me, a head scratching play. Third and six. They're moving the ball a little bit following our first score of the game. They get the ball right about midfield ish, and then they bring in to carry on Joiner, who used to play quarterback for them. He's converted wide receiver now. Um, they bring him in as a wildcat quarterback. What are they going to do with the carry on Joiner in as a wildcat quarterback? Obviously, they're going to run the football, but you're going to run the football on third and six at that part of the field and be that predictable. If you want to run the football, that's fine, but why are you bringing in a wildcat quarterback to do that? You're going to be that predictable in that situation against this defense as well coached as we are? Like, what are you doing? I, I can't understand that. I just can't. I cannot understand what they're thinking there. Um, offense on the offensive line, like they're just blowing assignments left and right. They're not uh, kind of like Rattler. They're not identifying blitzers. They're not handing off stunts very well at all. Sometimes they got guys just not even blocking anyone. Like, and there's guys like clearly in their gaps and they're just not picking them up and not really doing much of anything. I don't understand what they're doing on the offensive line half the time. Just poor coaching. And then another play calling example here, um, that, that play where Kirby went crazy, right? Where he's like, eh, first down in effort. And he's like shouting at the South Carolina sideline across the field, which I'm convinced he was doing. I'm still convinced he was doing that. Well, what did they run that play? Again, sitting up high, 500 level, section 502, uh, row 36, by the way. So um, didn't have great seats, but I even I could sit there and say, they're running mesh. And if you guys don't know what mesh is, it's when you got two receivers crossing each other in the middle of the field, right? You're trying to create natural rub routes, pick routes. And it's fourth and nine, and they're running mesh route. They're running a mesh route. Five yards short of the marker against our defense with our defensive team speed. You really think that's going to work out? I guess maybe if it was a perfect throw that led him perfectly up the field and he could run with it. Maybe, but that's not what happened. That's just a really tough throw for anyone to make, especially a guy like Spencer Rattler, who's not particularly accurate anyway. I can just head scratching stuff. What are you doing? What are you doing in that situation? What kind of play call is that? So, like, no, like they are not overly talented and they were clearly outmanned in that game, but it was so much more than just that. I mean, I was taken aback by just how poorly they were coached. So I know that we beat the holy hell out of them 48 to three or 48 to seven. I get that. But I also go back and rewatching. It's like, man, how much can I take from this game? Like it's an SEC opponent and we beat the crap out of them. We executed a high level. There's that. We can take that away from them. That's awesome. But we're going to play some much better coach teams. Like, I don't know, Kentucky down the road here that are not going to make those kinds of mistakes. And um, I think we're still going to win those games. We're better than those teams, but they're not going to make those kind of mistakes. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And, you know, I had a question in the mailbag was, you know, are we going to have a game that's within three touchdowns this year? And I know when you see games like this, you're like, well, we're just going to beat the hell out of everybody. We did this in Columbia in this hostile environment. Well, yeah, I mean, we're better than them. We're better than everybody on our schedule, but we're going to play teams that are not as poorly coached as South Carolina was. And it's just crazy to me how the media just picks their guys. They, they latch on to these guys and they just take them on as favorite sons, and they have absolutely no clue what they're talking about, and Shane Beamer is case in point. So that's all I got for the Upon Further Review segment. I'm going to get to the 
SEC Power Rankings here in just a moment, but before I do that, let me remind you guys about our friends at Alumni Hall. They've got some brand new gear coming in, guys. They just got their new, brand new Nike jerseys with the block numbers. They look fantastic, guys. Like I'm not a jersey guy. I might have to get one of those. I've been just longing for those block numbers for so long. They are in stock at Alumni Hall today. You can check them out in person inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center in the Classic City, or you can also do that online at alumnihall.com. Think about everything you guys could want, every brand you could possibly want, whether it's Nike, Nike Golf, Cutter and Buck, Peter Millar, Johnny O., Columbia, Southern Tide, like whatever your preference is, you name it, they've got it. Trust me on that. So make sure whenever you have any kind of need for some Georgia gear and accessory, whether that's for yourself or friends, family, whoever it might be, check out Alumni Hall because I promise you they will never let you down. But Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Okay, guys, last segment here. As promised, I've got version 2.0 of my SEC Power Rankings and there's been some movement. Some teams are staying exactly where they were in the first version after week one. But there's been quite a bit of movement, especially among those teams that were in the middle. But let's go ahead and dig right in. Let's start at the bottom and work our way up. My bottom three teams are actually the exact same as they were in week one. I thought about potentially moving South Carolina down below Auburn, but no, man, I I still can't do that. I do not like this South Carolina team. I never had a favorable impression of them. Again, I had them going six and six in the regular season with an upset win at Kentucky, which I knew was a little bit of a stretch, but hey, upsets like that happen here and there, and I didn't believe that much in this Kentucky team coming into the year either. But after what I saw from South Carolina last weekend, I have an even less favorable opinion of them than I did a couple of weeks ago. And it's not just that we beat them down. We're going to beat down a lot of teams this year. We beat down Oregon a couple weeks ago, and that Oregon team just turned around and beat the hell out of BYU. And that team is probably going to end up being like 9-3, 8-4 when it's all said and done. So a lot of teams, a lot of good teams are going to get beat down by the Georgia Bulldogs this year. So I'm not holding that necessarily against South Carolina. Again, going back to what I said earlier, I was just taken aback at how poorly coached this football team is. The talent is fine. It's not great. It's middle of the pack at best in the SEC, probably bottom third in the SEC. But good coaching can overcome some of that to a degree. But when you have middling talent at best and you're that poorly coached, 
you're just not going to be a good football team. You have absolutely no chance. So I really thought about dropping them a spot below Auburn, but then I watched Auburn play Penn State on Saturday, and I I felt strongly that Penn State was going to win that game. That's one of the winners I gave you on our pick show last week. I felt very strongly about that one. In fact, I went. I think I ended up going four units on that bet. I went heavy on that bet, and it ended up paying off in a big way for me. And part of that was I think Penn State's a pretty good football team. But also a bigger part of that is I just do not believe in Auburn. I told you guys that in the preseason. What did I have them? I had them going four and eight in the regular season. And I'm going to stand by that right now. I think there's a chance, a chance that Auburn could go winless in the SEC this year. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they probably are going to beat Missouri at home this week. But that's not a done deal. The thing is, there's, there's no surefire wins for Auburn in the SEC this year. There's not one single surefire win. They play Missouri, which is their closest thing to a surefire win in the regular season. And they got us out of the East. But you look at the West. I mean, they're not going to be Alabama. They aren't going to be LSU at home. I don't think they're going to be LSU at home. They're not going to win at Ole Miss. They're not going to beat Arkansas. I do not think they're going to go into Starkville and win. They're not going to be A&M at home. And they're not going to go into Tuscaloosa and win. They're never competitive in Tuscaloosa. When they're competitive, it's because it's at Jordan-Hare. That's not the case this year. So the only game, only two games I feel like there's a good chance they're probably going to win the rest of the way is Missouri this weekend at home and then Western Kentucky at home later in the year. And honestly, I'm not even sure they can beat Western Kentucky. I, I'm dead serious about that. If, if by that point, when that's the week before Alabama, if Brian Harson has been fired and there's been a cleaning of the house there at Auburn, there's a very good chance that team's just going to give up, kind of what you saw from Florida last year, and they could easily lose to Western Kentucky. Western Kentucky can jump up and bite you if you're not paying attention, so that could easily happen. So this Auburn team very well could be winless in the SEC, 4-8 and eight overall. Uh, Missouri, again, they're probably going to win that game, but I mean, maybe, probably, but there's no guarantee that's going to happen. And with South Carolina, I will at least say they have more skill talent on offense. They do not have anyone like Tank Bigsby. That's the one saving grace that Auburn has. They have a stud running back, but they have no answers at quarterback right now. They have probably the worst receiving core in the SEC. Look at what Will Sheffield did for Vanderbilt against Northern Illinois last week. I think we went for like, like 170. I, I would have said maybe Vanderbilt had the worst receiving core in the SEC, but after that, maybe not. Maybe it actually is Auburn. So either way, it's one of the worst. It's it's the second worst, if not the worst receiving core in the SEC. When Nick Braun went down at center, they've got major issues on the offensive line, which they've had for years now. And defensively, I don't think they're that good. The front seven's solid. They're decent. The back end has problems all over the place. In South Carolina, at least you have like, I mean, Spencer Rattler's not good, but he's competent. Like he's, he's at least average. And I don't think they even have an average quarterback at Auburn right now. Uh, Jaheim Bell is a really, really good tight end. Uh, Antoine Wells, Juice Wells is a really good receiver. I mean, coming into last week, he didn't do anything last week, but coming into last week, he was leading the SEC in receiving. So at least they have some some solid players, some guys that can, that can make plays for them offensively, which Auburn outside of Tank Bigsby just simply does not have. So I've still got Vanderbilt at number 14, but I'll be honest with you guys. I strongly consider moving Vanderbilt up. Guys, this team is 3-1. This team is 3-1 right now. They have already passed their win total. Their win total coming this season was 2.5, which I took. Your boy took, already cashed in on one of my win total bets in the preseason. I took them at over 2.5, and, and they hit that by mid-September. Don't get me wrong. It's still not a good football team. Their wins are over Hawaii, Elon. And Elon, Elon win was a close one. They were actually outgained by Elon. And then they came back. They were down 28-14 to, to Northern Illinois on the road last week and came back and scored 24 unanswered points to win that game. Yeah, they only beat Northern Illinois by two touchdowns. But 
This is a step forward for Vanderbilt. However, they're still by far the least talented team in the in the entire league. Hey, AJ Swan, the true freshman quarterback. I think there's a little something to that guy. I think he's a little swagger. Um, he's a dual threat guy. Can throw the football a little bit. I think they might have found themselves a guy there, but I still have them number fourteen right now. But we'll see as the season progresses. I mean, they're gonna get they're gonna get destroyed this weekend at at, at Alabama. Like that should never happen. Like I, honestly, Vanderbilt should just never have to play at Georgia or play at. Uh, at Alabama, that just shouldn't happen because that's just, um, man, that's just wrong. But that's going to happen. But I, I think that they could potentially move up a spot or two by the time it's all said and done in the regular season. But right now, I got them coming at number fourteen. I need this. I need to see it from them in the SEC. And right now, I'm just not sure if that's going to happen. Coming at number thirteen, I got the Missouri Tigers. And I think honestly, between Missouri and Auburn, it is a toss up there. They do play this weekend. It's going to be at Jordan Hare. T.J. Finley is not going to play this game. It looks like, looks like Robbie Ashford, who finished the uh, the second half of the game against Penn State last weekend. The guy's a dual threat quarterback, transferred in from Oregon. He's going to be the guy this week. We'll, we'll see what happens there. But like Auburn should be favored to win this game. I think it's right around a touchdown right now. But it would not shock me at all if Missouri found a way to win this game with all the toxicity kind of just circulating around that Auburn program. Wouldn't shock me at all. But right now, I got Missouri coming at 13. I think Auburn has a little bit more talent. Not much more, but a little bit more talent. They just have not been recruiting well at all lately, but still better than Missouri. So I'm going to go Missouri 13, Auburn 12, and then South Carolina, who, again, I strongly consider dropping below Auburn, but I got them coming in at number 11. Then moving inside the top 10, here's where I have my first movement from version 1.0. I have Florida making a pretty significant drop down the rankings, going from number 6 in version 1.0 all the way down to number 10 here in version 2.0. And if you've watched them play the past couple weeks, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everyone in America that covers college football was just giddy about Anthony Richardson after that week one victory over a top 10 Utah team. And hey, Richardson had a fantastic game. You got to give the guy credit. Did a lot of great things with his legs, broke up a long touchdown run, did some really good things, throwing the football as well. But talk about a week one overreaction. Sure, he had a really good game against a good Utah team at home in week one with a new coaching staff, all the excitement. the fan- Hey, the swamp was actually full. Like, can you believe it? That doesn't happen. And it was actually full that game. Had a great game. But that's just a massive overreaction. He started to catapult up all these people's Heisman rankings. I mean, this guy was being talked about as maybe the front runner for the Heisman Trophy after week one. It's like, wait a minute, like, wait a minute. This is the the only game in his career he's actually done anything like this. So we're just going to go ahead and hand him the Heisman Trophy. And sure enough, the very next week, Kentucky comes into town and they have a different plan to defend him. They tried to keep him in the pocket and force him into a pocket passer, which Anthony Richardson is not equipped to do. He simply cannot beat you from the pocket. And since that point, the book is now out on Anthony Richardson, and he has done absolutely nothing since that point. He, in fact, has been abysmal since that week one victory over over Utah and his big performance there. And all those people that were pumping in for the Heisman Trophy a, a few short weeks ago, they've now gone into witness protection. Here's a crazy stat for you guys. Anthony Richardson, the guy that, what, three short weeks ago, all these national college ball writers, all these Florida fans across the country were pumping up as potentially a Heisman Trophy favorite, not just a candidate, but potentially a favorite after week one. This guy is one of only four players in all of FBS football with zero touchdown passes and four or more interceptions. So that's quite the distinction but not the distinction that you'd be going for. And here's another number for you guys that I came across this week. This is not necessarily Anthony Richardson specific, but it is certainly Anthony Richardson adjacent because it involves the entire Florida offense. 
Guys, Florida only has 10 plays of 20 or more yards this season. That is dead last in the SEC. So this offense with this quarterback that's supposed to be like explosion personified is literally so far through three weeks, a quarter of the season, the least explosive offense in the entire league. And the thing is, Anthony Richardson was their only hope this season offensively. I told you guys that. If Anthony Richardson was the guy that Florida fans thought and hoped he was, then that could change the equation for Florida. But if he was not ready to be like a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback, this is probably going to be like a 7-5, and 6-6 six and six type team. I really believe that. I still believe that. I told you guys after week one, I felt if Utah played Florida 10 times, Utah wins that game 7 or 8 times. Utah, I don't want to say like they just blew the game. I don't know if that's necessarily fair to Florida, but Utah certainly did not help themselves. They hurt themselves, turned the ball over inside the red zone, not scoring a touchdown inside the three-yard line, and turned the ball over on downs and driving down to at least kick a a game-tying field goal to send the game into overtime, and they throw an interception in the end zone inside the five-yard line. Like I mean, I don't again, Utah didn't I'm gonna say blow the game, but they certainly, certainly made some critical mistakes that allow Florida to find a way to win that football game. And Florida never should have won that game. But they did, and people were looking for a good story, and they were all about Anthony Richardson, and they were all about the new coaching staff, Billy Napier coming in. It just made for a good story, and of course the media jumped all over that. And I did adjust my rankings of them a little bit. Coming into the season, if I did a power ranking in the preseason, I probably would have Florida probably where they are right now, number 10. But I, I bumped them up to number six after that went over Utah. Because based off one week, which I try to base it off what I've seen to that point, and there was only one week of football, I had to, to be honest, and give Florida a little bit of credit and move them up my rankings. I moved them all, all the way up to number six. But now that I have a few more weeks, two more weeks of subpar play, and they're playing more like the Florida team I expected to see coming into the season, I've dropped them back down to where I had them originally, which is at number 10. Anthony Richardson, in my opinion, is not ready to be that guy. And they just don't have the kind of playmakers around him to help him out. They don't really have any answers at wide receiver. Running back, they're okay. Offensive line, they're fine. They're not bad. They're not great. They're just kind of okay defensively. They have some decent players in the front, at least on the defensive front. Jervon Dexter is a really good player. Britton Cox is a talented guy, but he is the most selfish player I think I've seen in a long time playing in the SEC, and I watch a lot of SEC football guys. He is all about me, me, me. He is the antithesis of a team guy, and there, there's no way I'd ever want that guy on my football team, and I am damn glad that he left our program. And they have all sorts of issues in their back end. So no, I am not a believer in Florida. So I have them back down in their rightful place where I believe that they will be hovering the rest of the season coming in at number 10. Just above the Florida Gators, I have the Kentucky Wildcats coming in at number nine in my updated SEC power rankings. Now, this is up one spot for Kentucky, and I had to move them up a spot from my week one rankings because they did beat Florida. So I cannot sit here with a straight face and rank a team that went into the swamp and beat Florida in their house and have them rank below Florida. So they are up one spot coming in at number nine, but I'm just still not a believer in this Kentucky offense. I know Will Levis put up some good numbers last week against Miami of Ohio, but Here's the thing with Will Levis, guys. Go back and look at his splits from last year against SEC teams and non-SEC teams. Against SEC teams, that dude struggled to do anything through the air. He had one single game against an SEC opponent, against Tennessee, whose defense was very bad. He had one game against SEC teams that he threw for over 200 yards. And I didn't misspeak there, guys. I'm not talking about 300 yards. I'm talking 200 yards. One time 
in eight SEC contests, this guy throw for at least 200 yards. And that was with Wandell Robinson at wide receiver. He doesn't have that guy this year. Now, yeah, he's going into his second year as a starter, so he's more experienced. You imagine he's a little bit better than he was last year. But I just don't see him being the kind of quarterback that can put the team on his back and lead this offense to victories with his arm. I don't see it. He's a really good athletic player. He can do some things with his legs. He makes some of those wild plays like hurdling guys and all that kind of stuff. But he is not an elite college quarterback. Maybe he'll be like Josh Allen and grow into an elite NFL quarterback, even though he wasn't elite at the college level. Maybe that's possible. But the college level, which is all we care about right now, he is not that guy. He's fine. He's not bad. He's a good, solid player. He's just not that guy. And at offense in general, they just have some issues right now. And then defensively, yes, they are very well coached and they are a good defense, but they're not good enough on that side of the ball to compensate for what I believe are some some serious offensive issues for this Kentucky Wildcats football team. At least I'm going to call them serious offensive issues until I see them do something to change my mind. I mean, yeah, they beat four. They went in there and won that game, but they still had under 300 yards total offense in that game. It was more, like, I'll give Kentucky credit. They went in there. They were poised. They did what they had to do. They, they won that football game, did not turn the ball over. They capitalized on Florida's turnovers. But to me, that game was more about Florida than it was Kentucky. So until I see more from the Cats, I've got them still as a team that's going to go around seven and five, six and six on the year and I very well could be wrong I know this is a team that a lot of you probably disagree with me on and I do have a ton of respect for Mark Stoops and this it kind of pains me to have them that low and I feel wrong doing it because I do think he's such a fantastic football coach but I just don't think this team has the makeup to be a, a top half SEC team right now and then coming in at number eight I've got the Texas A&M Aggies who are down three spots from their initial ranking and I don't really think I need to spend all that much time on this one. You guys have seen this team play. You saw them lose to Appalachian State. You saw them some way, somehow find a way to grind out and eke out a win against Miami last week. This is a team that's a, it's a tale of two sides of the ball. They're very good on defense. Offensively, they are an absolute train wreck. Texas A&M is exactly what everyone has thought Georgia has been, which is erroneous. Georgia, we have not been what Texas A&M is right now, but that's how everyone's kind of perceived our offense. But this Jimbo Fisher Texas A&M offense is exactly what everyone has perceived our offense to be for years now. They have absolutely no game changer at quarterback. They've already made the move from Haynes King to Max Johnson, and Max Johnson certainly brings stability, but he does not bring game-changing ability, which is one thing they're going to need in order to change things here. And just the system in general, they don't push the ball down the field enough. They're not explosive enough offensively. Jimbo Fisher is stuck in 2013, and I mean, I don't, don't know if you guys have realized this, it's not 2013 anymore. It's 2022. He's got to modernize his offense. I don't know if he will. He's a very stubborn guy. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this year, if they end up going like seven and five and his seat gets hot, maybe that will motivate him to change things and bring in a guy to call the call the plays and hand over the reins there. I don't know. But right now, I just simply cannot justify having a and whether they beat Miami or not, I cannot justify having them higher than number eight with that horrific offense they are operating with. I just don't see any hope for that changing in the middle of the season. I just don't think they have the answers right now. Then moving on to number seven, holding strong at number seven are the Mississippi State Bizarro Dogs. I know they lost to LSU last weekend in Baton Rouge, but I mean, there's no shame in losing to LSU in Baton Rouge at night. And the weird thing watching that game when I got back to my hotel room on Saturday night in Columbia, Mississippi State was kind of in control of the game. Not kind of, they were in control of the game for about three quarters, at least two and a half quarters, if not three full quarters. And they just made some mistakes. There were some poor decisions with you know with Mike Leach. You got to take the good with the bad. He's going to go for it on fourth down in in strange spots on his side of the field. And sometimes it works out and it leads to points, it leads to touchdowns, and that's great. But sometimes it doesn't. And 
I think it was like three or four times against LSU where he went for it on fourth down a couple times inside their own territory, and it did not work out. They did not convert. They gave LSU short fields. That's an, that's an LSU offense that's still kind of struggling to find itself right now. And, uh, you know, sometimes, Mike Leach, you just got to understand the opponent, the situation, the context. You don't want to give an offense that's struggling to find itself right now any sort of short field opportunities to score. You do not want to give them that. You want to force them to go the distance consistently because I don't think LSU right now can do that. But they just made too many errors, too many turnovers in that game. And LSU, give them credit, was able to capitalize on those mistakes. And so, um, I mean, the final score was 31-16. I think that's kind of misleading. That was a closer game than that, than the final score. But I still think Mississippi State is a very strong football team. They were, I think their, I know their win total coming this season was six and a half. I had them going eight and four in the regular season. I'm, I'm still feeling pretty good about that. I think this is a team that is that was undervalued last year because their record wasn't great. But if you looked at all the major statistical categories, they were much better than what their record would have suggested. And I mean, it's, hey, it's not their fault they play in the SEC West. And I know they're still in the SEC West, but they have a veteran quarterback who is finally in his third year of the system here with Mike Leach. They have some really good players defensively. I like this Mississippi State football team, so I'm going to keep them there right in the middle of the pack in the SEC at number seven. And then number six, the team I just mentioned who just beat Mississippi State, the LSU Tigers. They are up from number eight in my initial SEC power rankings. I was um, frustrated with LSU after that loss to Florida State. It's a game that they never should have lost. Just like Mississippi State, I don't want to say they blew the game against LSU, but they certainly helped LSU win that football game. LSU helped Florida State win that football game in week one in New Orleans. You know, a couple of muff punts, some horrible decisions, some some turnovers, a blocked extra point. A lot of things went wrong, and LSU certainly contributed to Florida State winning that football game. And I was frustrated because I had I went, kind of went out on a limb in the preseason and had LSU as, a, as my surprise team in the SEC going 10-2. and two. After that loss to Florida State, I said, there's no way they're going to go 10-2. And, and I still don't think there's any way to go 10-2 and because that 10-2 and two record was contingent upon them winning that game against Florida State week one in New Orleans. I, but I still think, if you look at the schedule, this LSU team could could potentially end up 9-3. and three. I think they might have the second-best defense in the SEC, potentially. Alabama's still going to make an argument there, but I really, really like the talent they have on that side of the ball, even with the loss of Mason Smith. The problem for LSU, as I mentioned earlier, talking about Mississippi State, their offense has not figured out exactly what they want to do right now. They are starting to lean more on Jaden Daniels in the run game. He ran for almost 100 yards against Mississippi State last weekend, but the pass game is still very much a work in progress. I mean, they only they threw the ball 37 times since Mississippi State only averaged 5.7 yards per attempt, though, and they're still not finding a way to get Kayshawn Boutte the football, and that's crazy. This dude has got to touch the football more than three times. He had three catches for 31 yards. He is one of the most talented receivers in the entire league. They're lucky the dude even came back. I thought he might try to pull a Jamar Chase and just sit out this year, but he did come back, but uh, he he is not getting the touches I think he needs to get. A part of that is, you know, Jaden Daniels is a really athletic quarterback, but not necessarily a dynamic passer. He throws a good deep ball vertically down the field, but he struggles to consistently master what defenses are trying to do to him. He, he gets kind of happy feedback there and just wants to take off. So I need to see this passing game progress if I really want to go all in on LSU and say, yeah, you know what? They can still be a 9-3 and team, but I don't think that's out of the question either, because that defense is going to keep them in a ton of football games. And look, LSU, with Brian Kelly in his, in his first year, they're only going to improve as the season progresses. So I thought that was a big win for them. I honestly thought Mississippi State was going to win that football game, and for about three quarters, it looked like I was going to be right. But give LSU credit, they were able to find a way to kind of hit their stride late in that game, and were able to uh, to pull away and win 31-16. So a, a nice win there for LSU, and let's see if they can continue that on the rest of the way. 
Okay, let's move on inside the top five, and here we go with Ole Miss. Guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. My, my top four are the exact same top four that I had in my initial SEC Power Rankings. Number five is different. Ole Miss is up quite a bit. They're up from number nine, and after week one, I had questions about this newly renovated Ole Miss offense because they only beat Troy 27 to 10. Now, looks like Troy might actually be a, a pretty good group of five team this year. They haven't been in the past couple years, but they, they pushed Appalachian State to the brink last week. And Appalachian State's a team that just went on the road, beat Texas A&M, came with an eyelash of beating North Carolina week one in an absolutely thrilling game. But Ole Miss, you know, this team is different. They're, they're structured a little bit different. They're running the football very, very well, led by Zach Evans, who's been dynamic. He, I thought he'd be a dynamite player, and he's proving to be every bit the player that I thought he would be if he can just stay out of trouble and, and not be a locker room cancer. He's been great. Their passing game has still not been fully activated yet. Jackson Dart's the, the guy at quarterback right now, but they're not throwing for 300, 400 yards like you are used to seeing from Ole Miss quarterbacks. You know, and I will say, you know, Matt Corral, he dealt with a lot of injuries himself. Like he was hurt. The receivers were hurt last year. And, uh, you know, down the stretch, he was that guy was struggling to throw for 200 yards a game. There were just a lot of issues they were dealing with offensively. But those receivers are back healthy. At least, like, Jonathan Mingo's back healthy. You got Michael Trigg coming in from USC as a, as a transfer tight end. But the passing game has not really been clicking so far yet. And, and part of that might be that Jeff Levy, the offense coordinator, is now gone. He's at Oklahoma. But the running game has been dynamic. They just absolutely destroyed Georgia Tech 42 nothing. They could have they could have put 70 on that team if they wanted to. But the fascinating thing so far about this Ole Miss team is the play of their defense. And look, I know they have not played anybody with a pulse. I understand. They've, beat, they've beaten Central Arkansas, they've beaten Troy, and they beat Tech, who might be, if not the worst Power 5 team this year, maybe the second worst. I think Colorado might actually be worse than Tech, but Tech certainly, like, it, there's a battle there for who's the worst Power 5 team, and Tech is certainly in the middle of that battle. So they haven't played anybody. I understand that. But even against nobodies from years past, the Ole Miss defense was still giving up loads of yards and loads of points. And right now, if you look at the SEC scoring defense rankings, of course, Georgia's number one, giving up 3.3 points per game. Well, guess who's sitting there at number two? Yeah, believe it or not, through three weeks, it's that Ole Miss Land Shark defense only giving up 4.3 points per game. Now, obviously, that's not going to stick. The schedule is going to get tougher, and we'll see if they really are that much better. But again, they are improved at the very least because they weren't doing this kind of thing against these types of teams in years past. So that's going to be very interesting to watch. Is this Ole Miss team just built a little bit differently? Are, are, are they not going to be necessarily dominated by their offense and led by their offense? Is the defense actually going to do its part this year? And if so, you know, Ole Miss, I told you guys in the preseason, I thought they were going to start 7-0. and I thought they were going to start 7-0 and and be inside the top five. And then, you know, their schedule really picks up late. They got to go to LSU. They got Alabama. Uh, got Texas A&M. Got a really tough final five games of the season. But I, I'm going to stand by what I said. I think this team will be 7-0 going into that final stretch and probably ranked inside the top five. And the offense is only going to improve as they kind of figure out what they want to do with all these new pieces once they kind of figure out that identity. And Lane Kiffin's going to figure out the identity. That's what this guy does. And if the defense... Like they're not going to play to this level all year, but if they can even be middle of the pack in the SEC when it's all said and done defensively, this could be a very, very dangerous team in the SEC West. Okay, and as I mentioned, the top four are the exact same as they were in the initial ranking, so I'm going to kind of just run through this real fast. So at number four, I've got the Arkansas Razorbacks. And look, I know that after Missouri State, and nearly losing that game. God, can you imagine they would have lost that game and Bobby Petrino coming back? Like, dear God, that would have been rough. And so after that game, I understand that's gonna, this ranking, having, having them still at number four, is going to raise some eyebrows. But my question would be, who are you putting in this spot? 
every option that you have is flawed. I strongly consider moving Ole Miss in the top four. I really did. But I, I have not seen Ole Miss beat anybody that has a pulse. Arkansas has done that. Arkansas beat Cincinnati. Arkansas beat South Carolina. Now, South Carolina, do they have a pulse? Uh, I don't know. But Cincinnati is a good football team. And look, Cincinnati pushed Arkansas, but the Hogs won that game. So I've just seen more from Arkansas at this point than I have Ole Miss. So that's why they got the nod here at number four ahead of Ole Miss. But I could certainly listen to an argument for having Ole Miss ahead of them. But I'm going with the Hogs at number four. And look, I, I understand. I understand that that was a bad look against Missouri State, but they also had a big rivalry game this week. Could have been a look-ahead spot. 100% could have been a look-ahead spot. But what's really hurting Arkansas right now and what hurt them against Missouri State is they simply cannot cover anybody. But here's the thing. They are down a ton of guys in the secondary. Two starters from week one went out in week one against Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, that's when they started to mount their comeback. Arkansas was in control of that game completely. Then you had Miles Slusher, their nickelback, go out with an injury. Their former All-SEC safety, Jaden Catalan, also went out with an injury. They had one of their backups go out last week. So they, they are missing some dudes in the secondary. And because of those injuries, they are really struggling to cover anybody. But they do think they're going to get all those guys back. And once they get those guys back, I think that will stabilize this Arkansas defense because Drew Sanders has become one of the best pass rushers in the entire SEC. You know Alabama is probably kicking themselves for letting that guy get out of town. And he didn't think he was going to be a starter. He thought that Dallas Turner was going to start over him. Saban said earlier this week, no, he would have been a starter if he stayed here. But uh, I don't know about that. But either way, he is now in Arkansas and he is playing lights out for them rushing the passer playing stand up inside linebacker but you they use him as kind of a uh, uh, an edge rusher on obvious passing downs that that dude has been dynamic so far this season offensively we know what Arkansas is and I love watching this team play I love watching this offense play KJ Jefferson is the perfect fit for them and they're better along the offensive line you know not having Traylon Burks hurts a little bit but they're able to manufacture some plays you know you've got Jaden Hazelwood coming in who we all remember his name from recruiting a couple years back and he's not quite as good as Traylon Burks, but you know, he's filling that role fine. Uh, Trey Knox has started to really do some nice things from the, at tight end. He's a converted wide receiver, so he's got some some pass catching skills as well. But I really, I still like this Arkansas team. I don't know how long I will have them number four. I might change my mind after this week. But right now, based off what I've seen so far in the teams that they have beaten, I'm keeping the Hogs at number four. Quickly moving inside the top three, Tennessee is coming in at number three, and I'll, I'll stick with what I said about them in, in the first go around. Tennessee has an elite unit. Their offense is elite. Defensively, they're I mean they're going to be average at best, and that, that might be putting it nicely, but they're going to score on just about everybody they play. And guys, yeah, they're probably going to score some points on us. Hopefully not that many, but they'll probably score some points on us because they're just really good, and, they're, and they're, it's well-schemed. They have a lot of talented players at those spots. It's a really good offense. And you look at the teams behind them, who else has like even just one elite unit? I guess AM's defense has an elite unit, but their offense is so bad. LSU's defense, I think, is also an elite unit, but their offense is not even remotely close to what Tennessee has. So I think in terms of combination of offense and defense, even though their defense is certainly very average, I think Tennessee with that offense, that dynamic offense, deserves to, at least for now, be ranked inside the top three in my SEC power rankings. And then, of course, number one, number two, we got Georgia and Alabama with the dogs coming in once again at number one. I had the dogs at number one in the initial rankings, and obviously, why would I change? I haven't seen anything to change that right now. Alabama's offense, you know, what can you tell from Louisiana Monroe? I don't know. Bryce Young is not the same Bryce Young. Why is Bryce Young not the same Bryce Young? Well, Bryce Young does not have the same receivers running wide open every single play. He's still a really good quarterback, but he just does not have the quantity or quality of help around him this year that he had last year. 
And here's what's happening with Alabama. The questions I had about this team coming into the year. And look, I had them going 11-1. I didn't have them going undefeated. I had them going 11-1. But I had Georgia winning the SEC once again. And a lot of people kind of looked at that and said, oh, you're just being a homer, Tyler. And I get that a lot because I run a Georgia podcast and I'm high on the dogs. But you know, it's also because we're actually you know good. We are the defending national champion. And I felt like Alabama has some serious questions. Number one, I did not think they had a legitimate, true alpha number one wide receiver. Everybody thought it was going to be Jermaine Burton. I thought it might be Tyler Harrow more than him. It looks like I'm wrong there. I don't, he's been like MIA. But I knew it wasn't going to be Jermaine Burton. Jermaine Burton is not that guy. He's a good receiver, but he's not that guy. I got told all offseason I was just being bitter and, and being petty and whatever. It's fine. No, I was just being objective. Didn't think the guy was that was everything that everyone thought he was going to be. Good player, just not that kind of player. And I also had questions about the offensive line. The offensive line was bad last year. And yeah, I know they had some injuries, but a lot of those guys that were filling in for their injured starters are guys that are playing for them this year. And then you're relying on Tyler Steen, a transfer from Vanderbilt of all places, to come in and be the answer for you at left tackle. I just didn't know if it was going to work out the way they thought it would. I know Alabama fans are used to things just working out for them, and so they expected it to, but I just, I don't know, I had questions. I, I wasn't saying it, it couldn't happen. I just had questions. It looks like they don't have the answers right now along the offensive line or at wide receiver. And you got Bill O'Brien, who's really not a great college offensive coordinator and they have some problems on offense even with the returning Heisman Trophy winner and then for us at number one guys I'm not saying that we don't have some questions I, I I've been very open throughout the first week saying that there are a couple things defensively that I need to see us answer I think that we have the answers there I just need to see it especially you know being able to actually slow down a rushing attack that's a competent rushing attack which I think this one this week against Kent State will kind of fit that bill but I just think we have far fewer questions than Alabama. We've been far more dominant against a more difficult schedule to this point. And there's still a lot of football left to be played, obviously. But through three weeks, and I base my power rankings on what I've seen to this point. Who do I think are the best teams? It's all about who do I think if they lined up and played right now, who would win football games? These are not rankings most deserving, that kind of thing. It's about who do I think are actually the best teams based off what I've seen to this point. And I think it's clear. There's zero question about it that through three weeks, the Georgia Bulldogs should be ranked as the best team in the SEC. And that's exactly where I have them in my SEC Power Rankings version 2.0. But all right, guys, that's it. We went long today on this. This one actually turned out to be a lot, a lot longer than I thought it would be and than I anticipated. But you know what? Once you get going, you get into a groove, you just keep on rolling. But Charlie will be back with me to close out this week with our week four picks of the week. We'll see if we can match what we were able to do last week. It was a great week, guys. I don't know if we can match that. We had one hell of a week. I think we were like... 15 and 4 combined against the spread, something like that. We'll recap all that when we get to the show uh, later on this week. But make sure you check out that, guys. And again, make sure you sign up for a new account at MyBookie so you can bet alongside with us. MyBookie.ag, promo code UGA to double that initial deposit. But thank you for being here, guys. Appreciate you. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.